I also would love to, uh, after we talked about in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, Larry Atkins, who I don't, he wasn't here first service, thankfully, because I flubbed something, but he was, uh, he, I don't think you see him here today either, but he showed me, he said, you got to see this. Um, so in his time as a Marine, at some point, he served under the Allied Joint Force Command, and he was excited to show me this is the symbol um, for them, um, which is the winged lion. And he thought it was really cool that to get to study and looking in Daniel and to see this winged lion is something that he had patches on uniforms um, that, that had him connected to. So uh, again, that's just another cool thing for us to learn about. Um, I'm going to be teaching through chapter 8 until I run out of time today. Um, and I have now after first service, I have a pretty good suspicion of when that will be. Um, but until then, I really didn't. Um, I really had planned on, Paul was very gentle with me this week and didn't make any comments, but the... Uh, the truth is, I had told them, I think maybe there's reasonable for me to get through chapter 8. I really do. And uh, in one week. And then I just yesterday sent them 14 pages of notes, and so uh, which represents at least two Sundays, if not more. And so it was like, well, you know, <laughs> that's not going to work out. And so because as I continue to unpack chapter 8, I've taught it before, and based on previous teachings, I thought, yeah, I can, I can just zip right through this. And then, and then getting more time to dig in and study um, I discovered, no way. There's just too much here. And there's even things that we're going to push off to future weeks. Um, but it's such, a great, it, it's such a great chapter. And this is where, this chapter is where the detailed and accurate predictions are so detailed and accurate, the skeptics are forced to date this book after the events that they happen. Because they're just too accurate. And so that's why you'll have skeptics often teaching historical skeptics or, or secular historians, teaching even, gosh, even, even many Christian uh, teachers, teaching that this book was written um, in the 100s B.C., either after or during the events when they're happening. Um, there's a, a numerous problems with that, and there's, by the way, really no good reason to believe that, except you have this huge problem that, that God is telling Daniel things with such detail that if they haven't actually happened yet at the time he's telling Daniel, that means there's a God, and that God reveals mysteries. And if you can't tolerate those two phrases, then you have to date Daniel later. I, however, can tolerate those two phrases. Um, I'm totally comfortable with the idea that there is a God, and He speaks and he sometimes even gives hints into the future and what's going to happen, and he does that. And because I believe that, there's absolutely no reason not to accept the 600 to about 550, 520 B.C. that Daniel claims to have been written during. There's no reason not to accept that because I believe there's a God and he speaks. There's a lot of reasons. One of the main issues I have with the later date with saying it was in the 100s B.C. during the time that's going to happen in chapter 8 is that that requires this group of, of kind of religious zealot hermits called the Essenes. We've studied that. We talked about them in the book of John called the Essenes. They lived in a place in Israel called Qumran. They were hiding out there. And if you go visit there, you understand why no one ever bothered them there. It is in the middle of the, it is the, middle of the Dead Sea region. And the idea of having to walk there or ride a horse there is unthinkable. I, I just can't even imagine anybody doing it. And so um, it is in the middle of a, a just a, a wasteland, and that's where they lived, and that's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, was in their compound. Well, in their compound, they, the Dead Sea Scrolls included segments from Daniel. So to summarize, I would have to believe that these religious zealot hermits 
we're already treating Daniel as at least special, if not sacred, within only 40 years of when it was written. And that they knew that it wasn't really from the 600s. And I cannot make myself believe at this stage that the Essenes at Qumran would have been okay treating a fictional book written just a few years before as being sacred or special. That's just not how they were wired. And so it's, there's the, I think the best evidence by far is that it was actually written when it claims, which is in the 600s B.C. up to 500, almost 500 B.C., that that's the time period. Um, so, so that's what this, this is a, um, part of what this means is that chapter 8 is largely, as we study chapter 8 starting today, is largely a comparison of the text of Daniel and the history that happens after the text of Daniel to show the prophetic power, what is being described and then what actually happened. So we'll tiptoe as we go through chapter 8 through the time of about five to 600 years before Christ until about 100 years before Christ. Now, for most of us who aren't very good with history, even for those of us who aren't good at history, we're extra bad at that time of history, right? It's kind of like in American history, if you say, tell me about the things that happened between, I don't know, 1800 and the Civil War. And we're like, I mean, I assume nothing happened, right? I mean, there was, there was Washington and Jeff, and then there's Lincoln. He's next, right? Like, Nothing else happened during that time. And we can't name presidents during then. It's always the gap. We're like, you know, Polk, I think, right? Like that's kind of the, so it's kind of like that. So this is a time of history that you may know little or nothing about. So there's quite a bit of a history lesson today. All right. So we'll start in verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which, after that which appeared to me the first. Okay. So. Um, I wrote myself a note that made no sense to me in the first service, but now it does. The, um, the, the, I think what's happening is Daniel, Daniel is starting to feel the pressure of what's going on here. He's starting to feel the pressure under Belshazzar's rule. He's starting to feel the pressure of what's going on. I wrote myself a note that asked, like, have, have any of you started noticing the white-tailed deer showing up in the daytime? Like, that wasn't a thing 10 years ago, right? And now you have to dodge them not only at night around here, but you have to dodge them during the daytime. That's because we're now overwhelmed with them, right? The, the, the niche that they fill is now totally saturated with them. That made a lot of sense when I wrote it down to connect that to Daniel's kind of the pressure of him. Now he's not only having dreams at nighttime, now he's having dreams in the daytime as well. It's a reach, I admit. So we start back at Hebrew. Here's where we start back at the Hebrew rather than the Aramaic. So we, we started in Hebrew. And then we jumped over into Aramaic a few chapters, chapter 2, and, and now we're back to Hebrew. And why? Why is the, the, the language that it was written in shifting? And it's a mystery. Most, most commentators will say it's because chapters 2 through 7 were largely about the Babylonians, and Aramaic was kind of the religious language of the Babylonians. And so it makes sense that since we're talking about them, and Daniel would have wanted them to be engaged with it, that it will be written during that, in that language. But now we're back to Hebrew, and, and sure enough, the emphasis is going to be on God's people and the effects of history on them. Um, so, we'll see. Um, probably this is at the very end. He had said this is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Belshazzar only reigned for three years. So this is probably right at the very end of Belshazzar's reign as the prince slash king. Um, you can go back and learn more about him um, way back. 
Um, this is a second vision, and this must be somewhere around 560 B.C. Somewhere around 560 B.C., so 560 years before the birth of Christ, um, about 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago. Verse 2, I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. All right, so let's stop there for a second. I'm going to lay some groundwork for you again. Why is the perspective of Daniel in Susa? It's interesting. In the language, we don't know. One of two things is happening. Either Daniel starts having a vision, and he's, I don't know, back in his home in Babylon. He starts having a vision, and in the vision, he's now in Susa. Or Daniel's in Susa, visiting Persia. I'm about to explain that. And there he has a vision. Either way, the perspective is the same. His perspective during the vision as if he was in Susa. But the language, because of the way the Hebrew is written here, we don't know which it is. Is being in Susa part of the vision? Or is being Susa where he had the vision? So let me explain Susa and Elam to you a little bit. So let's look at Elam. The region of Elam is there. So there's the Persian Gulf. And Elam is the kind of the national area there, just, uh, just north area of the Persian Gulf. Okay? Now, just, just to put it in perspective, if you wanted to go visit there today, where would you have to go? In fact, you can go visit this. Um, where would you have to go to see the Ulai Canal? You have to go to Iran. So, Iran is where... Um, or Iran. I know we pronounce it both ways here in East Texas. But um, in Iran, you have, the, you have this, that, that's where this place is. And in fact, it has been found, um, the city of Susa, even the Ulai Canal. We can look at that. And the Ulai Canal is, the, is a man-made canal um, that connect, goes around the palace of Xerxes and the citadel there, the palace there that, that the Persian kings had set up a, a, a kind of a capital there. And that's where Xerxes was, okay? Now, so I want you to be able to picture this vision. So I'm going to read the entire vision to you, and I want you to experience it a little bit more as a vision, okay? So I'm going to read the whole vision, and if, if you will, for most of you, unless this freaks you out or something, close your eyes and try to picture what's being described, okay? Do your best to picture this. I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other one, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing in the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, 
toward the east and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, trampled on them. It became great, even great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. There you go. There's the vision. So I don't know to what degree you're able to do that, to what degree you can see these two great beasts running along the canal and smashing into each other and the consequences of all of that. This location is a special location biblically. Elam turns up a couple of other times at key moments. In Esther chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the days of Hasuerus, and Hasuerus reigned from India, from Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in other words, Xerxes, in these days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So again, you saw that picture, Xerxes' citadel, where he sat on his throne room. In Nehemiah 1, 1 and 2, um, so Nehemiah in 444 B.C. is going to lead the people out, most of the people, out of exile to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Um, so that's, that's down the road a little ways. But here's what it says. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hasaliah, or someone else, somebody with the name H. Now it happens in the month of Kislev on the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So Gordon, he, he was Xerxes, he, he was, he was um, the king's wine taster. So of course, where was he? He was in the citadel in Susa with the king of Persia. All right, so maybe it's important to know this because it tells us a little bit about who this nation is that's going to start the prophecies. He is in Babylon, he's in Persia, at least in the vision. So verse 3 again, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal with two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Okay? So when you pictured that in your mind, it felt, it probably was like, if you were good at that, this was kind of weird and difficult to picture, and you're like, I have no idea what this means. Well, Daniel would have felt even more that because this isn't what's a, what he's, what's being prophesied for us is now history. For him, it was all in the future. He had nothing to attach to it, right? Which is okay. I'm going to teach this chapter a little differently. The way I'm going to teach it is I'm going to give you the section of the vision. Then I'm going to jump down because in the second half of this chapter is the interpretation of the vision. So instead of trying to teach straight through it and then teach straight through it again because it would be repetitive, I'm going to do the section of the vision, and I'm going to reach down and grab the interpretation and bring it up and look at them together. Make sense? So here we'll start there. So we're going to jump down to 8.15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So Daniel sees this vision in its entirety, and as he's trying to understand, he's sitting there thinking about it, and all of a sudden, there's a human, there's a man standing next to him, which is creepy. And behold, he's standing there and has the appearance of a man, and then a voice comes from the river, from between the banks, from the river itself. And remember, God's voice is also often described as coming like rushing waters. So here we hear the voice coming from the rushing waters, and it says, not to Daniel. The voice is not speaking to Daniel, it's speaking to the man. 
and we get one of these epic introductions in all of human history right here, right? This is a great movie moment. This is, this is the turn, and, and Indiana Jones turns and faces the camera, right? For the first time in all of movie history, and we meet this character, and you're like, wow! And um, sometimes movies really mess this up. Sometimes they get it really good. This is a significant moment in human history. God is about to introduce somebody to man. And so he says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Let's take a minute and talk about Gabriel. Um, Gabriel's going to become the common messenger for Daniel. And so many assume this is Daniel's introduction to him. It seems to be. It is certainly his introduction to us. Um, so introducing him, Gabriel, his name means the strength of El. Now, those of you who are, because we're a good Hebrew audience, we know that El means God. And then anytime we see El in a name, we know it references God, beginning or ending, like Elizabeth or Michael. These are names that have L in them. That's why Michael is spelled so strangely, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. You'd expect it to be E-A-L. Um, it's how you can remember how to spell Israel, which we in the West never spell correctly, because um, intuitively it's Israel, right? But so, so it should be I-S-R-E-A-L. There you go. Perfect. But that's backwards because Israel means to wrestle with L. Michael means who is like L. So that L is there as, as a reminder, this is about God. Daniel. L, E-L. So we see this all over. Gabriel is going to be the strength of El, the strength of God. By the way, when you see Yah in a name, um, like Yeshua, you're going to have, a, you're going to have that Y noise, that, that Yahweh noise. Um, that's important. Okay, so, but it's Joshua. Um, so, here we find him, like the book, uh, we've, we meet him, if you read other Hebrew literature, you'll read him like in the book of Enoch, um, but we certainly meet him in Daniel. And it fits with the common understanding that Gabriel is God's special messenger for his people. This is when God wants to speak to the Jews, he sends, either he speaks directly to a prophet and they speak to the people, or God sends Gabriel to deliver a message. Um, so just like Michael, who is a special soldier for them, um, so here he explains the vision to Daniel, and this is, I mean, to, Gabriel expects, explains the vision to Daniel, because Gabriel knows what's going on, apparently. Daniel doesn't, so he's going to explain it. Now, 600 years-ish, five to 600 years later, Gabriel's going to be busy again, the same guy, because it is this Gabriel who's going to appear to Zechariah and Mary and maybe others when Jesus is coming. Same guy, five to six hundred years later. So he does not age. He's a spiritual being. This isn't, though he appears like a man, he isn't merely a man. Um, another little funny quirk is that at some point, though no one knows where, um, apparently, that the term, the idea that, that there's going to be a trumpet blast, you know, that, that there's, the trumpet will sound and the dead and cross will rise from Thessalonians, that that's Gabriel who's going to blow the trumpet. That's not in the Bible. That just became a kind of a historical, funny little goofy thing that began to be connected. Some of you may be familiar with that. Some of you may know a song that references this. Anybody? Starts like this. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. The eyes of Texas are upon you. You cannot get away. By the way, until you write the lyrics of the song, you don't realize what a creepy stalker song this actually kind of is. Um, you cannot get away. Do not think you can escape them. 
at night or early in the morn, the eyes of Texas are upon you till Gabriel blows his horn. There you go. Interesting, not biblically correct. I said in the first service, and this just died. I mean, Paul was like, the only person that laughed was Paul because it died so badly. I said, not all universities can be expected to be biblically accurate, I guess. Yeah, see, no, still nothing, really. I need to let that one go. I need to just, I need to just bail on that. All right, so that the fact that there are angels, these messengers, is intriguing. Um, messengers, soldiers, leaders of the invisible creation. In the evangelical church, for a long time, we've had a very unsophisticated look at this. There's the good guys, angels. There's the bad guys, demons, in the invisible creation. We're going to really unpack this as we talk in detail about the concept of the power behind the power. That's going to come up in this chapter, but I'm going to kind of I'm going to reference it, but kind of skip over it because we're going to really need to unpack that in chapter 10, in Daniel chapter 10. So just have that in your mind as we really unpack what this invisible creation is like. I mean, it may take a whole Sunday um, separate almost to teach through this, but we're going to talk about that. Anyway, Gabriel shows up, and our natural tendency is, of course, we want to portray Gabriel as a good Christmas angel. So we end up with all types of visuals throughout history of the artwork of Gabriel that look like this, um, or the next one that look like this. But it's actually quite clear in the passage what, da- what Gabriel appears as. When Gabriel shows up, Gabriel looks like what? A human. There's nothing about wings or halos, right? Um, we started adding that in because some invisible creatures have, seem to have halos or seem to have wings, but, but Gabriel's not described that way. So probably a more accurate picture is a more, this more modern representation of just a guy. And this stage he's glowing, maybe that's accurate, maybe that's not, but here you have Gabriel shows up and he looks like a human. And of course, what happens very often when angels show up, because there's something impressive about them, is that the, the prophet who's speaking to them falls on his face. The angels are never okay with this. Um, you see this happen, especially in Revelation, a couple of times, because John actually falls down to, as if to worship the angel. And you can imagine, of all beings, the angels who did not rebel, they don't want there to be any misunderstanding about this, right? They're like, don't, no, I didn't tell him to do that. This is, listen, get up, get up, right? But that's what's going on here is he's like, don't, <coughs> isn't, by the way, isn't it funny that even someone like Gabriel, perhaps one of the top three or four most powerful beings ever created, recognizes there is a God greater than him. Versus us as humans, pretty pathetic when you get to know us, but we think the rules don't apply to us. We're, we're, we're pretty special. Um, you know, we think there's no God higher than us so often. Um, okay, so verse 18. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. I mean, he's just, he's just limp, face down in the dirt at Gabriel's feet, and now he's unconscious. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Gabriel speaks. Daniel falls down into a big, deep sleep. Maybe this somehow is offered. Some commentaries think this offers us insight into the visions that Daniel is having. Maybe Daniel's so exhausted, he's so overwhelmed, he's so stressed, that he's literally just seeing things in the daytime that God's giving him. We don't, know, we don't know how to picture this, what this is supposed to look like. But whatever it is, 
he now begins to see during the daytime this vision, and maybe now he's asleep, maybe now it is a dream, it's unknown. In any case, Gabriel revives him and warns him that there's more bad news coming before this is over. There's more bad news. As bad as it is, it's going to get worse. He uses this word that we have translated indignation. This is the Hebrew word that means wrath. It's what you, when it talks about the wrath of God, that's here. There is more wrath to come, and there's going to be an end of the wrath. And you need to learn about what's going on until the end of the wrath. I believe that the correct way of understanding this is that this is God's wrath at the betrayal, the unfaithfulness, the adultery of His people. And what's happened is He has sent them into exile. We know that. Because of their unfaithfulness, He has sent them into exile with the Babylonians. And soon, at the time that Daniel's seeing this, it won't be the Babylonians anymore, it'll be the Persians. But that's what's happening, and that God's wrath is eventually going to run out, but not yet. It's going to be a while. And that's what Daniel gets to find out. From now on, until God's wrath against His own people is completed, things are going to go like this. Verse 20, As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Well, there you go. No secret here. We know what these are. This is Media and Persia. Until recently, these had been two allied kingdoms, though under two separate kings. But at the time that Daniel wrote this down, they had been united under one king who had connections to both kingdoms, both thrones, a guy who became known Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persians and the Medes. So that's who's within the year, Cyrus the Great's army is going to conquer Babylon. Remember, we learned about that with the writing on the wall that they're going to come in and conquer Babylon. That's going to be his group that does that. So, uh, in the, back to the vision. So, we're going back up to the beginning. We've now covered the ram. Now we go back up to verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. You remember the speed described of the four-headed, the, con- the concept of a four-headed leopard with four wings that conquers everything so quickly? We talked about how Alexander the Great conquered essentially the known world in 12 years. Now, this ram, I mean this male goat, is pictured as moving so quickly it doesn't even touch the ground. This is how fast it is. It shoots from place to place like a rocket. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. He was enraged to get him and struck the ram and broke his horns, etc. So now we're going to jump down to Gabriel's interpretation, which is in verse 21. Again, no secret here. Well, who could this be? Well, Gabriel's going to tell you. This, is the go- this goat is the king of Greece. There you go. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others rose... Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So again, we're saying this is Daniel is having this vision at about 560 B.C. 560 B.C. The king who's being described here will show up in about 300 B.C. So 150 years later, this is going to be 250 years later-ish, is going to be this king. That's how far in advance this is being prophesied. The king of Greece is coming. This is Alexander the Great. Pretty much everyone agrees. 
Alexander's father did not successfully unite the Greeks until very shortly before his death, though chronologically Philip was before his son Alexander. Alexander is the one who was first to conquer Persia, first to really unite the Greeks in war, and the first to spread the power of Greece to the whole world. Now, when Alexander died, and no one could stop him, we talked about that. He was truly, he was unstoppable in his era. <clears throat> when he died suddenly in 323 BC, by the way, Alexander was not a nice guy. No, by the way, no, no one was. I mean, this is not an era of history when anyone is like the shining knight good guy. They're either victorious or they're defeated. But Alexander had the nasty habit of, of getting drunk at parties and killing his friends. Um, and so that's, that's hard on your friendships, by the way, if that's a, don't, don't do that. Um, and so he, when he died, suddenly he was mourned because of his power, but not a lot of friends mourned him. But when he died, four generals took over, four of his generals, four of his leaders, um, uh, Lysimachus, Lysimachus, excuse me, I pronounced that wrong, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. They took over, and generally what they did was fight against each other over the territories that Alexander had conquered. No surprise. They're very powerful, but they turn on each other mostly, at least to start. So, four horns, four kingdoms, just exactly like Daniel prophesied. Alexander the Great goes down in his place of this big horn being broken. Four new horns are, are put in place. When Alexander conquered the Jews, he allowed them to continue practicing religious, their, religion their own way. In fact, there's a really cool story. And, and so I want to give you a fun little historical note. For those of you who study this era especially and, and beyond, um, we have this historian named Josephus, the Jewish kind of slash Roman uh, historian Josephus. A lot of people weren't covering a lot of this time historically. Josephus was, and we have this issue with Josephus um, being engaged with this in a different way. He writes about um, the Jews supporting, uh, the Jews decided to support Alexander's enemies. You heard from Chris Sherrod a few weeks ago that that didn't work out well for Alexander's enemies. But for some reason, Alexander did not destroy, uh, did not destroy the city of Jerusalem. No one really knows why, but, but Josephus throws out a potential answer. Okay, so here it is. Um, the Jews decided to greet Alexander outside the city. When he showed up, they decided to show up to greet him outside the city in full priestly garments. The conqueror of the world bows down before Jadus, the high priest, and declares that it was that high priest who had appeared to him in a dream three years earlier and encouraged him to launch his expedition against Persia. So again, Alexander the Great claims to have had a dream. In the dream, a holy man told him to attack, to go ahead and conquer the world. And who we now hear, according to Josephus, that that person was in his dream was the high priest of Jerusalem. After rejoicing, Alexander enters the temple, sacrifices the God of Israel, and bestows gifts on the Jews. In fact, um, there's no, no one knows why he didn't destroy Jerusalem. Josephus is the only one who offers an answer, so we kind of have to go with it. And when the book, this is straight from Josephus' writings, and when the book of Daniel was showed him wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, because remember this is a couple hundred years later, when Alexander comes in and the priest shows him, look at what our book of Daniel says, then what you have is this, when, when he sees that one of the Greeks would destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. 
And as that, as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude back to the city. So here you have this amazing moment where it seems like God reaches in and steps in um, and engages here. In fact, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up here, here. Um, and engages in this issue where it may be very much so, I, and I tend to think it makes the most sense, that God had reached in and engaged. He had, he had sent unleashed Alexander into the world and, and was managing even these peoples. And as he was conquering the world, at some point he was looking to, hey, these people supported my enemies. Jerusalem supported my enemies. And what Alexander did to nations that supported his enemies was level them. What he did with cities that supported his enemies, like Jerusalem had supported Tyre, and again, go back to when Chris Sheard taught through that passage, but he goes and levels them, and he didn't touch Jerusalem. And so the answer that I think makes the most sense is this story from Josephus that Alexander shows up. Because can you remember why secular, remember, why do secular historians not like this passage in Josephus? Well, because they think Daniel wasn't written yet. So they have to throw this out because otherwise, remember, if Daniel's written, that means there's prophecy. And we can't have that, can we? So that's how hard people will do the contortions the other way. Here you have a historian from the era saying, this is the explanation for why Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. God intervened. Since that's not an option, we've got to go with something else. For us, of course, that's an option. And it even makes good sense why the city stood is that, is that Alexander the Great not only has this dream, and then the high priest is the person who fulfills that dream, but more than that, he also then sees himself in the book of Daniel. Pretty amazing stuff. So, again, as we face what feels like things are out of control, they've gone haywire in some ways, what we're reminded of is, even in the midst of this, God is speaking and working in ways that we may not see. We'll get to a passage in a minute that talks about how this, this, this horn that comes out that declares war on the Jewish people, how it truly is taken down by the hand of God. When we face these moments, recognizing God is still at work. We said this would be the application almost every Sunday through the rest of Daniel. Well, here we are. So the, the, the application is God is still in control. There is a God, and He speaks, and He's still engaged. So before we panic, remember... God is still involved. Stand with me, if you will, and let's, let's sing and pray together. If you've, if you've gone through our welcome home process and you're ready to join when I'm done praying here and we're doing that time of invitation, you can come on up. But my prayer would be for the rest of us that we would listen to what God says to us, um, that God would speak to us. If you're a first-time guest when you're done, make sure and head to the, to the back corner. But for the rest of us, praying, focusing in on what God has for us this morning, is there some comfort that He has? even in the midst of our difficulties. So pray with me. Father, we're so um, proud of what you've done and what you're continuing to do in our life. God, we're, we're so comforted by the fact that even when things seem out of control of our hands, because they are, they aren't out of control of yours. God, you are working in ways that we may not see um, ever until the end, but we know you're at work. God, we pray you would continue to work in us. Um, in mighty ways. Thank you, Father. We praise you and we love you in your Son's name. Amen.